This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where, right now you may be thinking, there's a lot to think about. You're going to mention Valentine's Day Court, but I'm going to mention game day favorites. If you're prepping for the big game or anything else where you're sitting around the TV or, you know, we're in our, hopefully on our last legs of being holed up inside here. Uh, Zupan's is the place where you can prepare for the game with marinated wings, stuffed jalapenos, homemade guacamole, uh, all made for your favorite football feasting coming up shortly. Yeah, you can't go wrong stopping by your local Zupans, whether it be for the big game or for Valentine's Day, which is just a couple of days after the big game. And they take it even a step further where they will prepare the meal for you, Chris. This is pretty great. You can either do a surf and turf dinner for two or a delicious house-made beef Wellington. And can you present it as though it's your own and then you did it like while somebody's away for the day and come home and honey, I made a beef Wellington for you. I think, I mean, you certainly could. Would, would we recommend that? Probably not. Not if you want that relationship to last. Well, see, I'm no good at that. Yeah. So that's why I suggested that. So sure. anyway, that's a good way to go. They also have one of the cool things about Zupans is if you follow them on their news feed and at Zupans.com, you're going to see their events. And they have Friday, February 9th, they have a Lustau Sherry and Lustau Sherry tasting and tapas. So that's that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, something you might want to get on, and you can buy the tickets right there at zoopans.com. Yep. Three locations to serve you, McAdam, West Burnside, and Lake Oswego. And as Chris mentioned, the best place to go for all your information is zoopans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host, Court Johnson. You know, you do that so professionally, Court. I think you could just record it once and, and drop it in each time. You know, I could, but <laughs> no, I'm a professional. Well, and we want to be, be real. We want to be real, and I do have to admit, I, I can't remember if it was last week's episode or the weekend before, I forgot entirely to introduce myself. So I'm sure a large portion of our audience has no idea who I am, at least that week. Well, <laughs> yeah, so that's millions of people, but you can make yes. it up with another million this sure. week. Sure, yeah, so. yeah. I, I took care of it today. We're good. Good. We're all good. Court Johnson. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there are a lot of Court Johnsons out there. If you Google Court Johnson, there's a there's lot. more. There's more than I thought there would yeah. be. Um, well, it's but the Johnson only, part of it. Part yeah, of I was going to say. But the, the court's pretty unique. I mean, there apparently was a folk singer back in like the 40s and 50s named Court Johnson. All right. Spelled my way. I I, I don't know what's up with that. How many? The question is, Chris, how many Chris Angelus is Well, there? I was just about to go there. So when I was um, in college, I took an English course and the professor was completely freaked out. And it took me a little while. He didn't like me. He treated me as though I was a, a bad force. And mm-hmm. the reason is he did his dissertation on a guy named Christopher Angelus in 1683, who was a uh, Greek who was persecuted by the Turks for his belief in his faith in the Lord. 
Oh. Something along those wow. lines. I'm not a religious guy, so I didn't look too deeply into it, and I really don't sure. give a shit. But <laughs> that 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 was what that was. So there is, you know, and there are somewhere in the world. If you Google now, there are a couple of Chris Angeluses out there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they're probably way cooler than I am. So I, but I doubt. You know, it's quite possible in this day and age they have podcasts. Oh yeah, no, no, they're they're, they're probably they're, they probably are. Yeah, everybody's yeah, a few, got one. A few now. podcasts out there with Chris Angeles as a host. Why not? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. um, anyway, Court, uh, I'm glad we covered all of that. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to say I had, a, I've been out for a couple of memorable meals lately. One of them was at, uh, Local Ocean Seafoods this weekend, which is probably my, I just love going there. I just, because you're in, you're in Newport, you're at the coast. Yeah. The people are really nice. The food, it's like, my, I like that kind of food. It's not precious. It's beautiful. It's delicious, fresh seafood prepared in a delicious way with lots of vegetables and, and just put on a plate and really good. I have some dishes I really like there. That was great. And then last night, I got invited to go to Kai Koo's. He's been on the po- podcast with us a couple of times. We'll have him on, I think, in the next month to talk about Warsagai. And I assume that's how you pronounce it. His new restaurant where uh, Beaker and Flask and Taqueria Nueve used to be, which is really nice space over on um, Sandy, like where the Sandy before. Yeah, Sandy, when it's diagonal before it meets Morrison. Hmm. And um, it was really nice. It's Chinese food. They don't want to put a real label on it, but it's uh, it's not as spicy as Dunhuai Canting was, which was too much for me. Um, and uh, really delicious. I had a really nice time. So um, thank you to Kai for that. And that's a good, just I'm making a suggestion to everybody. They might want to try that out. There's a nice new restaurant too. So it just opened. Nice. So um, that's that. They may want, people might want to try some restaurants in Spain and Italy with us. Go to Portland Food Adventures and see our trips to Sardinia, to Basque Country, all to, also to Andalusia. And we have some spots available to all of those in April and the fall. And they're great trips. We wouldn't be on year nine of doing these things if they weren't great because most people are repeat customers. And we're happy about that. So we have to get you. I, I'm going to someday we're going to get you to go court someday. I was just say it's it's uh, been harder and harder. I shouldn't say harder and harder to do. But um, between me taking this job in San Francisco, yes. and doing doing a morning show and then uh, now having a full time student in college. Yeah. Um, th- there's a lot of factors involved. While, while it might be some time, but I would love to do it. Well, you then you get envious every time you talk about it. Yeah, you can live vicariously through the Instagram, which is mostly my dog in the coast anyway. So it's only when I go to Europe do I post a lot of food shots. Um, I still have to post from last night at at Warsagai. I still have to post pictures, and um, you know I like to keep some food pictures on there once in a while. And then what's going on with our right at the fork Instagram? Do we do anything there? Uh, we, uh, we, when, uh, when opportunity r- reminds itself, to me, to me, I remind people of episodes going on. I need to ramp that back up a little bit, but, um, you know, does that mean that your name, your, your nickname is opportunity when you remind your, when, opportunity when I remind reminds itself, yeah, yeah. You, you sometimes give me set, uh, subtle little nudges, uh, <laughs> right. but, um, 
I, yeah, I've no, been I, in Oregon long enough, so they're very passive aggressive. They're not right. real yeah, direct. Yeah. yeah, they're not. Hey, would you post this? It's kind of like I'll send you, I'll copy you to the guest and say, "Court will be posting yeah. <laughs> this week." So anyway, those things exist. At actually, it's not at right at the fork. It's at Food Podcast PDX. So go join there. At Portland Food Adventures, your Court Johnson, and then also subscribe to this podcast and share it with friends. We'd love you. Sure. Too. In fact, this today, Chris, I was actually looking. Um, we have not. So I'm, we're, I'm going to make an effort. We do. We do this on the radio every now and then. Where we, where we make an effort to to do one specific thing, and here's what it is. We would like a review on on uh, on our podcast on specifically I look at Apple podcasts so mm-hmm. if that's the way you listen go in and give us a review it's been years since we've received a fresh review and I think it's time all right what could should we could, no we can't can we legally offer people anything like no, a contest for leaving a review? I, I guess you could argue that they, that that's probably not the best way to do it. I just, I, I just, if, if they do it, we'll, can, we'll thank them next time on the next, right. next week's podcast. We could do it that way. They get a, a shout right. out. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you what, let's do this. They can, re- let's not do it based on one podcast. Let's pick a timeline and say mm-hmm. the person that's reviews us, reviewed us the most, um, or, or the people who've done a good job, we'll, we'll name them. We'll give and them that, shout that, outs. And then we'll pick somebody and we'll, we'll buy them dinner somewhere good. There we go. So, oh, I got, uh, I got a place. Uh, maybe like Ringside Steakhouse. Yes, we can do that. We can we figure go. that out. And I don't think, who doesn't want dinner at Ringside? So, right. yeah, do that. That would be awesome. We'd appreciate it. And so, review this particular episode because I really enjoyed this interview with Dana Francisco from both Canard and Le Pigeon. So his title is not executive chef. Gabriel Rucker still retains that title. And, but he has stepped. I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't want to say this incorrectly and piss anybody off, but, but Dana will explain exactly what his role is and Gabriel's role is at the, at the restaurants. Gabriel's there daily. So he's, he's hands on. But I think the daily, um, you know, the daily serving and the menu, um, Gabriel obviously has something to do with the menu. But um, uh, Dana is the head chef. That's what he calls himself, the head chef at both restaurants, which is pretty damn cool, right? Those yeah. are That's big. And so Dana came here from out of town, and he was one of the many chefs who had heard about Portland and thought it was a cool place who made a sojourn here to, you know, do their own little Portland food adventure. And um, he sat and talked to Gabriel, and they hit it off, and they maintained contact, and one thing led to another, and uh, Dana's uh, experience at some pretty high-end, you know, Four Seasons restaurants, uh, heading kitchens there, and quite a few other places that you'll hear about in this interview, um, gave him the chops to have Gabriel tell him to come up, work with him in their kitchen, and now he's, he's the man. Um, one of the men, but he's the man called head chef, put it that way. And I really liked him. And uh, so we're going to hear about what goes on there. Uh, what goes on with his wife, Ginger, is the pastry chef at the restaurants, too. And we're going to have her on this podcast. Ginger, if you're listening, 
we'd like to do that fairly soon. And, um, and then also some of, uh, we talk a little bit about Dana's guilty pleasures. You know, they serve beautiful, delicious food at his restaurants, Canard and Le Pigeon. What, where he might go that he doesn't necessarily want to admit to, um, when he's not at the restaurants. Uh, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a surprise to me. It's kind of where I go. So, um, anyway, that was, it was interesting. He's a really, I really liked him. I think this interview was a little long. So that's fine. Cause it, when they're long, they're interesting. I'm not counting down the hour. Put it that way. So, uh, yeah, without more talk, making this longer than an hour and whatever it is, let's get to this, uh, talk with Dana Francisco of Canard and Le Pigeon. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark Restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. So thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's Monday. Is it, it's your day off. So thank you for doing that. Of course. And um, you and I already had a nice talk. I'd wish we almost recorded that because that was a nice talk, but we're going to do, we're going to do it again and maybe backtrack over some of the things we discussed and hit some new areas too. So um, I'm excited to talk with you because You've got one of the key, the key positions in the Portland food world, and that's uh, at the helm of the kitchens of both Le Pigeon and Canard. So I was happy a few weeks ago to see uh, Gabriel post uh, the fact, and I think it's been for a while, right? He was just posting that you were executive chef. Now is that your title? So Gabe, Gabe's still holding like the executive chef title, and and you know being a huge uh, factor in the driving force of the creativity with uh, collaboration with myself. So head chef for both Pigeon and Canard is, uh, is the actual title. Um, Gabe and I both aren't very hung up on that. And uh, he is in the kitchens every single day. So he still uh, uh, obtains and retains that title. Um, yeah. Okay. And he, he retains all the authority to, to, yeah. 
the make veto sure power. everything. <laughs> right, but you are too. So delineate a little bit the difference between what Gabe is doing, uh, and we're talking about Gabe Rucker yes. for any for the uninitiated. And if you're the uninitiated, I would imagine that most people listening to this podcast, it it's like initiation one hundred and one to know who Gabriel Rucker is. So, um, but let's let's talk a little bit about what he does versus what you do on a on a daily basis, and then even you know a global basis too. Yeah, so on a daily basis, I'm controlling all of the day-to-day operations, uh, scheduling uh, new hires, um, hopefully not very often, but terminations if need be, which is a few and far between in these companies, um, and then kind of collaborating with Gabe and he, as far as new menu rollouts, new menu items, uh, the direction that we want to take a more standardized tasting menu uh, format with Pigeon, and then any of the one-offs that we're doing with Canard. So Gabe is going back into uh, a very creative seat and kind of uh, relieved from all of the hassles of a day-to-day running a restaurant. I mean, he still has plenty of hassles. I'm sure he'll tell you that, but um, there are hassles. Wait a minute. Wait, hold on. There are hassles in a restaurant. I didn't know that. Yeah. So (laughs) I should be a filter between uh, that and him to kind of, allow him to continue to produce amazing food and for us to work together on new dishes. Um, but he's there as the creative driving force still within the company. Um, and I'm really, really happy and honored to uh, be by his side and have my input there. Well, so also I noticed he does some public speaking now too. So he's, he's kind of beyond the voice of the restaurant to the voice of the Portland restaurant industry. And I'm sure probably beyond that to the restaurant world as a whole, you know, through the pandemic there, they, there were some advocate advocates needed along the way. So he's still doing that, right? Yeah. He actually just had a talk this Friday and it's, it's crazy because this position didn't really exist. It didn't exist until I uh, came along and it happened about six months ago. I originally was hired as the CDC for Canard. Um, and then did two and a half years there. And then I've been in my current position as head chef for both restaurants for about six months. So the whole idea was a lot to allow him to open up his time to speak on behalf of the city, the restaurant group. Uh, and he still does that. And he still is out scrubbing trash cans and picking up dish shifts and teaching and mentoring the new cooks. So it's a, it's pretty amazing. He's got a, a very full schedule. Yeah, and you have a powerful team over there. So I had mentioned to you when we spoke last week that, um, you know, Le Pigeon and Canard are a very tight-knit group. One of the reasons Canard was opened, other than to expand creativity and, you know, to build a new business, was to give, I think, some of the people in Le Pigeon at the time a place to go and a place to grow. Um, within the organization. So that being the case, what I said to you is it was surprising to me. Yes, you did. You, you know, you have been at the restaurants for a few years, but you came from outside, which was a little unusual. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So as far as I know, and when I, when I was kind of getting onboarded and, and first met with Gabriel, um, they've never ever hired a chef from outside of the family and uh, the the core group of people that came up, and that's that's great. That's how it should be. Whenever you can promote from within, um, I know that that's our direction now. Is there's enough people mm-hmm. as you grow to three restaurants now, and then furthermore, and looking to the future, um, in a the best case scenario, we should never have to hire 
from outside of the group as far as um, positions, sous chefs, CDCs, etc., um, to just allow people to work their way up through the ladder. Um, I think, as everyone knows, COVID kind of turned everything on its side. Um, and it was a great opportunity from an outsider to even be able to get a shot. I actually, when Gabe first got into contact with me, he replied to an email and it was on the same chain for about 10 or 11 years prior when I reached out to him for a sous chef job. And he was very sweet back then. I looked through it and I thought it's more interesting than he did. It was like, Hey chef, we talked like 11 years ago. The last time uh, I could have been here 11 years ago. And I thought that was pretty interesting. He thought, you know, he, he probably gets a million uh, DMs <laughs> and emails every week uh, about job opportunities. But yeah, it was it was the right place, right time kind of situation. Taylor, the the former chef of Canard, uh, was made partner. So he kind of moved into a different role that took him outside of the kitchen. So it allowed me to come in. And I think specifically my background uh, in running restaurant groups, um, large format, uh, two boutique hotels and managing big staffs uh, was kind of a big selling point for Gabe and Andy to pinpoint me and kind of where they were going uh, with the restaurant group as a whole. And you were, uh, the reason you ended up here is you had, uh, you had been in the corporate world for a little while and your creativity was probably was stunted a little bit there. And you started thinking about, uh, new things. And, uh, along the way, you know, you had made some, uh, pilgrimages to Portland to check out the food scene here. Right. And that's, yeah. Really how you got to know. Yeah. I think a couple of members of the staff actually started in the same vein. Either they were from Portland and, uh, you know, obviously knew Pigeon and had interactions, great interactions with Gabe. Um, and I was the same. We started coming out. Everybody in Southern California or all over the country, but specifically California because it's such a short plane ride, um, you know, the heyday. Portland food scene, the early 2000s with Beast and Pock Pock and, you know, all these great, obviously, Gabe, we were all interested to see, you know, what was going on in this, this little town on the coast uh, and the West Coast still. And uh, we were coming up here and eating and every interaction I had with Gabe, even, you know, before we knew each other on a personal level and, you know, between his James Beard Awards, he was always the most grounded, down to earth person I've ever met for the amount of accolades that he had racked up already. And that, that reigns true to this day. Yeah. Now you're getting to experience it on a, on a daily basis, but how cool is that? It's such an, both ways. It's kind of an organic marriage that you, you know, it's not like you were out looking for looking at poached for jobs or you needed a job necessarily. And it's not like he was looking for someone, you know, you both admired each other's what you could bring to the table, so to speak. Yeah. And, uh, and it went from there. It, yeah, it was, I mean, again, it's like equal parts, right place, right time. And, you know, hard work and, and dedication to kind of hope those, those two things align in finding your permanent home. And I was working, Primarily the last decade um, in high-end hotels, I worked for Four Seasons. Um, I worked previous to taking this position or, or working at Canard. Uh, I ran a small uh, boutique uh, high-end hotel and restaurant group in Palm Springs. So, yeah, I think that you're kind of handcuffed when it comes to that. And, 
you know, if someone's spending $10,000 a night to come stay in your hotel, you need to be able to offer them whatever they want uh, culinarily. So I understand the business of it. And it was a great opportunity. It really allows you to grow um, as a chef into the business side of things and make compromise, which, of course, is the most important ingredient to being a, running a good business is compromise. So having that maturity of, you know, not getting too attached to things or talking to the, you know, the owner of the group and saying, like, I really just want a salmon with vegetables on the menu. No, no weird stuff, as you say. So, you know, that, that, that was great. And it was a great opportunity. And it's, it showed me a different side of this business. But I've been in for over 20 years now, um, cooking, and it was time to kind of return to why I got in this business, which is cooking delicious food in a great space with good people, and really being on, you know, completely the handcuffs are off for the most part. Um, Gabe has a dedicated following that really allows us to have trust in what we're cooking. And there's guests that are going to come out and just say, okay, feed me, you know, and that that's the hard part of. Uh, <laughs> and not people who just spent $10,000 on their hotel room. Yeah. So, <laughs> so speaking of hassles, I guess. So, so when you say, you know, in your former position, the charge was just give me some salmon and vegetables, nothing too fancy. What would the, uh, what would the commensurate, uh, command from perhaps Gabe B coming down or if you're looking for a new dish and you're you know let's say salmon was the 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 star of the dish what would he say or what would he tell you you couldn't do I guess he wouldn't tell you you couldn't do that's the difference between creativity and not he'd probably suggest more where to go than where not to go yeah, like it's funny. We, he did a a dinner, like a salmon focused dinner, uh, eighteen months ago or so, and was like so stoked that he's like salmon wings. I was like, what are those? What salmon wings? He's like, yeah, salmon. There's meat on the ends, you know, right right behind the cheek, and we can just make salmon wings, and we should we should put this on the menu for Canard. And I think with Gabe, more of the opposite, where I take the uh, the, the position of uh, what I was getting, where I'm like, oh, chef, is that? I don't know if the guests like that. Should we tone this down? He's like, no, no, like more brains, more livers, more hearts. Um, it, he, it, the, the roles have reversed in this new position, and it's great. I mean, he's always trying to push the boundary of, you know, let's we never repeat a dish, and that you know, after eighteen years, that's a pretty incredible thing. There's nuances of of techniques and ideas, but uh, there's never been a complete one for one recreation of a dish in that restaurant, and that's the only, I guess, bearing like actual handcuff is we have to constantly produce new things that are exciting that keep the staff involved and that keep our regulars that have been there coming for 18 years and the new guests that have never been there. So that's an interesting philosophy when I think about it from a, from a uh, patron standpoint, because, you know, I may have come. And by the way, first question is when you say you can't repeat a dish or what is that? What is that time frame that you're talking about that you can't repeat a dish ever? So 18 years. I mean, since well, I know, but you've got to revamp a menu like weekly or monthly or annually. You so can't repeat we, a dish. We, we look at the menus and we don't do because of the size and scope of the restaurant. We don't do a full like every three months. Uh, we rewrite and, and gut the menu. I mean, as you know, like when people say seasonality, seasons on paper don't happen every three months, you know, even mm-hmm. 
spring, every week or midweek, there's new things that become available as the, the seasons progress. And the hardest learning curve for me is that the seasons here are different than California, obviously. Um, there are actual seasons here, but even spring specifically, like March produce, uh, your fava beans, your fiddlehead ferns, your, your ramps, that stuff doesn't really show up in the beginning of March. So my first year here, it was March 1st. I'm like, all right, chef, let's start working on the, you know, let's get some fava beans on there. Let's get some fiddlehead ferns on there. And he just laughed and he was like, okay, like see if you can find them. So um, <laughs> what we really roll out, we're usually working two or three dishes R and D in the back, you know, of our mind as the menus are running every two and a half weeks or so, there's a dish, one or two dishes that get replaced on the menu. So this last week we had one new Amuse go on. Um, going tomorrow we have a new uh, third course, a new fish dish coming on, and a new um, omnivore Amuse. So every two weeks or so a dish changes, and then those dishes will run for about two months on the high side, two and a half months. And then if something isn't being received well or we need to rework it or uh, reassess, you know, there's no ego there. We're like, okay, we, we took our shot. This may be, you know, conceptually was great uh we don't think it's being received well or there's a better way to do this and we can improve on this and that's one of the huge benefits of having a team of nine people you know everyone's on the same i'll see everyone on the staff within two days you know we're done today so everyone within two days of it's up to speed so a dish not being received well does that necessarily mean that it's not being you're not seeing orders for it or that people are actually commenting on it and saying, eh, I mean, because, you know, it's hard to get feedback, especially when I, you know, I think people go to Pigeon or a Canard and they've read so much about it. They feel like intimidated in saying that they would have any authority to say, oh, I don't know if this works with this. So you're not necessarily getting feedback in that way. So does it boil down to what's what's being ordered on the menu? Well, I mean, in, in, for Pigeon now, it's it's tasting menus. So they're, they're stuck in the order regardless. <laughs> I think it's more of the nuances of you're face-to-face with the guests. That's one of the beautiful things about this restaurant. Like, you're right. There is a lot of um, the people that come into that place – are, are coming to have a good time, have an experience. But if there's anything less of, you know, a slight hesitation, well, how was everything this evening? How was your fit? How was your squab? Um, we pick up on that. And it's not, good isn't good enough. So if it's not a home run, that's when we say not being oh, So you can tell that because people are either super excited or they're just nodding their heads. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If they don't, you know, it, it's, if, it, Usually in this business, if you hear something more than twice, it's the truth, right? If you don't get overwhelmingly, this was very successful, we know right away. And we have such talented people from front and back of the house that most of the time, they'll tell you within the first week, whether it be the servers or our our floor manager, Pigeon, or our our wine director. So it goes through a lot of levels of the the tasting and the R&D process before it hits a plate and it gets printed on the menu. Um, all the sous chefs taste it, all of the cooks taste it. I mean, it really is, there are a lot of filters that get there. And um, being received well might be an operational thing too. Like this is this pickup is too long, we're on tight turns, we need to get everybody out and, and make them not feel rushed in a two hour and 15 minute window. Mm-hmm. Uh, operationally, it doesn't work or 
uh, our steamers too full because there's three items that are going on into the steamer between the vegetarian and the omnivore menu, then we need to reassess it too and think if there's a, a better way to be more efficient in, in producing that. So is that necessarily the case with canard, which is not a tasting menu? So, you know, here's the thing. People go to canard and you've got a lot of visitors from out of town. I have to say that when I have visited both restaurants, I've been near people from out of town who are coming and they are doing food visits. It may not be just for your restaurants, but you're one of them and you're right up there. So if someone had, you know, the, the sliders, two years ago and they tell someone you got to go have the sliders. You can't take that off the menu and start with something else because you got to have some sort of consistency on that kind of menu. Right. Uh, I can understand Le Pigeon where it's understood it's a tasting menu and it's, it's going to change, but on the other one, you've got to have consistency. Yeah. I mean, I think that in the iteration of Le Pigeon now, it doesn't work if canard doesn't exist, right? So the thing that kind of drew everybody to pigeon initially was, you know, Gabriel and his his ability to cook food, and uh, the charisma that he has while doing it. He he has fun. I mean, like they they come for a show for both restaurants. You know, you don't get to really experience that. I think it's more common in in Portland. I think a lot of kitchens and restaurants are built that way. But in Southern California, where I'm from, it that's kind of few and far between. Or if there is an open kitchen it's pushed back 30 or 40 feet. You don't really have interaction with any of the, the chefs there. Uh, but yeah, absolutely right. Uh, with canard, you people are coming for consistency there. So we do have menu slots and uh, that are up for grabs per se, as far as what can be changed out. Obviously the duck stack is never leaving. The sliders are never leaving. Oyster service is never leaving. Uh, but there's a, there's a vast amount of, uh, creativity and ability to change there as well. And I have two great sous chefs over there right now, Nikki and Victor, that are uh, really, really driving that restaurant creatively as well and, and, and doing a great job. That's a lot of creativity. And I will say it is, you know, Le Pigeon and Canard, but yeah, that's got an open kitchen too. Um, but uh, that is what drives, what makes Portland unique. For me, when I came from Connecticut, where there wasn't a, such a thing at the time as an open kitchen at all. You never got to meet anybody, see anything. It just came out and, you know, the face of the restaurant was really the server. Le Pigeon is theater and um, it's really fun. And you have to make it fun also for the people who aren't sitting at the, the counter too, because everyone else exists. How do you do that? How do you make sure the people who don't get the counter seats are as entertained as the, those at the counter seats? Well, I think it's, we, we definitely have the ability to go out and touch tables that are outliers outside of the counter and be present there. Gabe has uh, mastered that uh, much quicker and, and faster than I have, because every time he's working online with me, he'll disappear out there and go run food and touch tables and just ask people how they're doing, where they're from, uh, greet old guests. And we still try to do that, all of them. It's not just myself or the sous chefs either, like all of the cooks, especially in Garmiget, which is at the end of the pass, uh, they'll drop food off. And I think that people just want to be seen and um, asked about their experience and like truly asked about their experience, a non-scripted thing. I think the casual nature of that restaurant is what's the most appealing to people that aren't from this city. I don't think that you usually get uh, such a high-end quality service and food standards 
with a more casual setting where the chefs will come out or Gabe will come to your table, chat you up, give you uh, recommendations for where you eat for the rest of your trip, you know, and really spread the love to the other restaurateurs and chefs in the city. Um, and that's what we, we try to follow, follow suit with that uh, every single day that we're, that we're in front of our guests. It makes it, you know, it makes it unique. And I think, yeah, one of the things that, you know, I've always felt was important and I know other people do is, yeah, get knowing the chef. And one of the things that I did with my events was I want you to get to know the chef because this is really cool. We don't have a ton of sports stars. And even if we did, where I come from the New York area or where, you know, you're from in Southern California, there are a lot of sports teams, but you're not touching you know, like how many people actually got to know Damian Lillard yeah. when he was in Portland, right? Very rare that someone would even get to have a picture with him. But that's different. Showing up, getting a picture with him, a selfie. Now you're at a place where someone's handing you hospitality and their love and what they do. And you get to know them. And if you come back, you know, maybe you remember somebody or they remember and they feel that much more welcome in their home. And food is very different than sports. I, I liken the two because I've always felt that our Portland's chefs and the people in the food world and the wine world are our sports stars. And but they're more approachable and it's really, really cool. And I, you know, Le Pigeon especially kind of set the tone for that. And no disrespect, to, I'm trying to think of other restaurants that may have done that. But no, young, in his 20s, yeah. Gabriel Rucker, doing that kind of thing, he did set the tone for that. And and I also say this, and I want to hear your voice more than mine, but this happens. Um, you know, when I was doing my with Portland food adventures, which involve talking to other chefs about what they, where they like to go and what they like to do. Oh my God. You know, in dozens of those to a person, Le Pigeon was on the top of every list. So, um, you know, the, even the people in the industry, they appreciate that and they want to do that as well. So, um, what percent, what, what percentage of people who come in are in the industry? You got to know. And you, you know, that's pretty cool for you coming from Southern California where you really weren't in the circle here. You had to permeate the circle and now you're getting to know some of the other people. And I want to hear a little bit about who some of your, some of the people you respect most from a uh, professional standpoint and a personal standpoint might be that you've met. Yeah. So I think the amount of industry that comes in is probably half, if not more. I think a lot of, um, a lot of the food tourism, uh, they're, they're doing the same thing that I did when I was in my early twenties. You know, there's, you can tell right away when there's young chefs sitting at the counter, there's uh, young wine directors, like, and, that that's about half of our our guest makeup, I would say, and a lot of them are from out of town. I think half of the guests are from out of town for pigeons specifically. Canard right. is uh, easier to get a reservation there, easier to just walk in and, and hang out and get a slider and uh, a cocktail. Um, as far as uh, the people that I've gotten to meet, it is great. I mean, three years here, and I've only had great interactions with other chefs, uh, other restaurateurs here. I think. It's kind of goes without saying, but Earl in general is just, you know, especially with, we're very happy for him getting, uh, you know, his, his nod from the, uh, the shortlist. 
Let me just insert Earl Ninsom for those who don't know. Earl Ninsom of, of Hot Yai, Paddy. What do you start with? Longbon? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that now. So, yes, Eam. Eam, Eam, of course. Uh, Eam Staples. And um, he's been in a couple times to Canard when I was there. Gabe did a great job my first year out in the city to every single time a, a chef came in, whether it be. You know, nationally recognized, uh, hometown hero, everybody everybody in between. He pulled me out from the line and, and introduced me. And, and he always, he said in the first month something that I'll always remember. He said, uh, Dana, it's camaraderie before competition in Portland. I've never heard that. You know, I've, and I really believe it after being here for three years that, you know, everybody, we if one wins, we all win. You know, there's enough for everybody and we really root for each other and we always send people to other restaurants that are our favorites and, and vice versa. Um, I've had great interactions with Earl and I love eating in his restaurants. My girlfriend and I eat at his restaurants probably every month. We were just at Yarat, had a great experience. Uh, Gregory uh, is also someone that's, you know, Gregory Gorday. Yeah. Sorry. Gorday. 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 Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, he's a, recognized all over TV and top chef now. So I think everybody in the nation probably knows who he is, but you know, his restaurant con's amazing. It's the hardest seat to get in the city and, you know, have nothing but respect for the guy. And he's a, he's a, a friend of the restaurant friend of Gabe's and I've only heard good things about him and all the interactions I've had with him have been great. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, on a side note with Gregory, when I met him, I thought he was the most shy guy. I, that, you know, we, we were doing an event and I wondered whether he was going to be able to handle the customer, um, uh, you know, interaction with customers really well. He stood up and he was a different guy than he was one on one with me. <laughs> and I don't know what that says about me, but anyway, he was, uh, and since we get along really well, but he, I would never have guessed that this is going to be the TV star coming out of Portland. If you said, who's going to be the TV star, I would have said Gabriel. I would have said, you know, John Gorham or something. Gregory is the guy who took the torch and, uh, and he's been doing really well with it. So that's very cool. And, and you've been to Cannes, I would imagine. So I can't get reservations there. I, I asked Gabe. <laughs> I've been clawing at him to try to, to, to get in there, and then I uh, haven't been able to get in. So uh, hopefully this year, this 2024 is the year that I get a reservation at Con. All right. Well, listen, we can pull this clip out and send it to Gregory, okay. and it might, might help. And in that, in that regard, is there anywhere else you haven't been able to get a reservation? We want to that – that if the industry is listening, they might call you and say, dude, you can just give me a buzz. Yeah, I'll get you uh, Long Bond. So I've been to three <laughs> other concepts except for Long Bond. I think that the hours uh, of operation, they don't really line up with, like, my schedule. So I think there are only four days a week. I don't want to – misquote that but i think the last time i checked i think there were only operational four days a week and it just wasn't working my schedule but and you got to as last i knew you got to be six months in advance for that or or you got to get lucky and follow them on social media and and hear about the stray reservations that came come daily yeah so and you gotta you know you gotta be ready to pounce too because they don't last long all right, Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat in Portland, Ringside Steakhouse. And I'm going to say, if you care about service and you like good service, great service, 
Ringside is the place. I mean, I've discussed this with a number of friends. There's nowhere in Portland that has better service than Ringside. Now, there may be some that have as good at times, but Ringside, you know you're going to be taken care of when you go in. So Every single time. Absolutely. And it's cozy, and it's the food is great. Let's not forget that. But uh, if you want to take someone and, and make them feel special, ringside is the place. And why not take them on, say, a Monday night where all night long it's their prime rib three-course dinner special. You get mixed greens. You get the prime rib, of course, along with the horseradish and Yorkshire pudding. And then you can wrap it all up with creme brulee. Are you a Yorkshire pudding fan, Court? I enjoy it, yeah. I yeah. love it. And uh, I know that I, I've enjoyed it all uh, quite often with their prime rib special, but also I've had the we've had the batter. We we got the batter in a kit. I don't know if they offer that, but we asked for it, and we mm-hmm. made Yorkshire pudding here uh, for some friends, and it was just delicious. So oh, very nice, yeah, very nice. And also, are you aware? Yes, you are that they have merchandise now. I'm looking at their their apron. A ringside apron? Who wouldn't want a ringside apron for grilling outside or or inside? Yeah. Now, I, I, I've been envious of these for some time, and they introduced these last year. And, uh, it'd be, you know, for the ringside fan in your life, a great way to surprise them with something different. Right. And it's always nice to get a gift when it's not Christmas, when someone's just not expecting a gift. Yeah. That's the best time to surprise someone. So I would suggest take someone you love to ringside and then go to the bathroom and come back with a t-shirt, a hat, or a, or a, uh, or an apron. One of the, the, one of those. A little surprise. Yes, exactly. You can uh, make reservations a couple of different ways. You can go to the website ringsidesteakhouse.com. That's, of course, where you can find out all the different hours, um, things that are going on at uh, Ringside Steakhouse. Make your reservations there or hop on the Open Table app and make it through the app. Exactly. Best thing you can do. Ringside on West Burnside, or you can find them at ringsidesteakhouse.com. You came from directly right from San Diego area. That's where you last were or where you spent a lot of time. Yeah. Direct, anyway. Uh, directly prior to, to coming into Canard, uh, I was in Palm Springs. So I, I worked for a uh, boutique hotel and restaurant group. So there was just two, two hotels and two restaurants attached to the group. And I was there for three years. And prior to that, um, was kind of back and forth between uh, Hawaii and Diego for 15 years or so. All right. So you're a young guy. Can you ever, when I first moved to Portland, I fell in love with it. And I was like, I couldn't even envision leaving the area. And uh, now I sort of have, but I'm still in the area and I'm still there and I'll still probably see you in the next week or two. But can you envision leaving now? You're a young guy. You can't map out the rest of your life, but you know, knowing that this, this psyche that aligns with the way you like to think, could you imagine going to a place like Palm Springs again? No, well, Palm Springs, no. Palm Springs was great to visit. It was a, a tougher place to live. I mean, I love Southern California. I love San Diego. Um, I love my, my neighborhood I, I lived in for almost 15 years, North Park. Um, it's just different. I, mean, I think the quality of life is, you know, everybody's kind of post-COVID and 
really wane? How much time spent uh, working in kitchens? You know, what do you do with your free time? I mean, this last three years has been a godsend to, to me and my, my girlfriend, Ginger. It's you know allowed us to spend more time together. We spent our first Christmas together. We've been together for eight years. And uh, we spent our first Christmas together not working uh, my first year with this company. So I don't think I can really, no matter how nice the weather is and what's available there, I don't think I can ever trade that back. I mean, I really, Portland has a ton of great things about it and it's our home. Um, as far as the, the near future, I don't ever see us leaving in the near future or, you know, I'm not that young. I appreciate that, but uh, I don't, you know, the, the future is kind of, is uncertain, but I, I think as far as when we look at our life moving forward, uh, this is our home and we've, we've put roots down and, and we want to continue to grow with the city. And you're both there, right? She's doing pastry. Yeah. She's the pastry chef for uh, both Pigeon and Bernard. So she's, uh, yeah, she's wildly talented. She's, you should probably be interviewing her instead of me. She's the best cook in the kitchen. Oh, we don't, it's not an either or situation. <laughs> we can get her, we can get her back and we can get her in. I'm sure if she wants to come on, I can't just presume that, but I can leave that to you to do that, uh, that lobbying on our behalf to, uh, to get her on. What's your, do you have, um, do you have a memory of the first thing you ever ate that she prepared that blew you away? Yeah, actually I do. So it was the, she has this like nasturtium dessert where it's like a spun, like a white chocolate mousse that was flavored with like juice nasturtium leaves. And it's like freeform pipes on this plate. And it was this kind of cylinder dead center of the, this like ravier, this long kind of uh, rectangular plate and all of these like broken shards of chocolate and dehydrated fruits and patafouis and i'd never really seen that i've worked with great pastry chefs especially in like high-end hotels you have you know right ancient frenchy pastry chefs that can just do amazing things um but she was very unassuming uh she she doesn't talk about herself she if you asked her on the street you know what she does for a living she'd just tell you she's she cooks and she would probably leave it at that um and texturally visually she cooks so bright and assertive and clean and just all of the, I can't even come close to replicating or doing anything that she can produce. And that was the first bite where I was like, holy shit, this is, this is amazing. You know, this started something great. Do you two, uh, in your either at work or at home, do you talk about uh, your recipes or some give each other suggestions to put something maybe over the pop or uh, over the top or a, a different spin on something? Are you can you can you mix and match that way? Yeah, it's funny because she's vegetarian, so she we eat vegetarian a lot at home. Um, she eats about half of the things that I can produce because we do run a vegetarian tasting menu. So she's first in line to taste those things. Um, so I, before I put anything up in front of Gabe, I, I run it through her. I'm like, Hey, does this work? Would you be happy with this if you're a diner? And she gives me uh, notes on those for sure. I think a good rule of thumb is if you have a really talented pastry chef, give them not too much critique kind of let them do what they do. Um, but at well, also if she's your girlfriend too, you don't want to, <laughs> um, but yeah, she, we, we talk about 
we talk about food all day, every day. We're trying to minimize that and just enjoy time together when we're not in the kitchen. Um, but you know that we don't really follow that rule too closely. So we're constantly talking about things. We run a pop up together that's like a um, like French Polynesian, um, heavily like Filipino influenced, heavily Hawaiian influenced. Um, so we 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 work on that pop up kind of when we have free time. And where's that and when's that? How do people find it? So the only one we've done in Portland was at Floor Wines, which is also a part of our our group um that andy our game business partner um owns and operates so they don't have a fully functioning kitchen so they don't produce they have like cheese boards and charcuterie so they don't have a, a chef or like a, an operating kitchen there it's closer to like a nice home kitchen so we did that one last spring and then we were in talks with them to do another one uh this march well and you the best way to get tickets to that the last one sold out in like 20 minutes so it's attached to their um email list uh floor, floor wines floor wines yeah um so hopefully in march uh we'll have another one ready we've started working on the menu we're really excited oh that's right around the corner so i i have to ask the one that you did i i'm gonna put a little small little dollar wager on it but was gary the foodie there Gary the Foodie was not there. Oh! Gary the Foodie was not there. I lost a buck. Yeah, yeah, he was not there. <laughs> it was nice. It was like, you know, we'd, we'd never done, uh, we've done our, a lot of pop-ups together. We've never done one there, obviously, or in the city, and it was, you know, still relatively unknown, um, mm -hmm. and we were a little nervous, like, well, are people going to come out, or, like, is the dollar amount too high? Uh, and all of those kind of worries uh, immediately dissipated after you know it went live and all the tickets sold out. So we might we might do a second seating this time and, and try to restructure it, but we are limited by the fact that there's not a commercial kitchen in there. So we have to design the menu around the space, which is not too unfamiliar working in Pigeon and Canard, anyways. So. All right, you can get that done. So what? So do you have? Have you um, aligned your days off? Is she off today too? And do you guys get to play on together? I would imagine that would be kind of one of the benefits of working in the same restaurant and yes, and making your schedules. Yeah, so we we have uh, we have one overlapping day. So she's off Saturday, Sunday. I'm off Sunday, Monday. So we have one day together, and then one day to kind of. Um, you know, do things outside of the restaurant and you know, not not with each other, which is I think that's nice. It's a nice balance. One day off together is more than we've ever had in the past couple of years, so mm -hmm. uh, we're happy with that setup. And uh, hopefully, it'll go back to two days off together. But I think she's probably tired of. I think one day is enough of her. <laughs> well, no, you know, it's nice. It's hard. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. So right. I think that helps in a relationship. The little that I know about relationships, uh, or successful relationships, but I've done okay. But, um, so what do you like to do when you have the day off together? What, what kind of things outside of food, um, or whether it may be food, but what's, what sort of things do you find yourself doing on Sundays? Well, definitely food is always still there at the forefront. We like to go at least once a month and try somewhere. Uh, that we and there's no shortage of great places to eat in the city, as you know. Um, so we usually want to try some place new for dinner. Uh, it 
hours of operation are harder on Sundays. Most people are open, but uh, it's a good day to have off uh, as far as to go try new places. She loves so I'm not so, so much of a fan, but she'll drag me along on that uh, to go. What does she love? Uh, you cut out, and I don't know if it cut out for everybody or just me. Um, hiking. She loves anything outdoors. Right. So definitely hiking uh, is is big on her radar. And, she, you know, she likes to read. Really, just being together in the same house, hanging out with the chickens, hanging out with all the animals in the house, like that's uh, – that that takes – it's nice to just be at home. We're kind of homebodies now. And, um, you know, she's not a, a drinker really. She'll have a glass of wine. So just kind of being in our, our space, working on the house, renovating the place, and uh, spending time with all the – the many animals that live in and outside of our house. What do you? How many? How many animals? And what are they? Uh, we have five chickens. Two turned out to be roosters, so they actually live with one of our old cooks on her farm out in Oregon City. So there's three chickens here still. There are a lot of cats, less than ten, more than two. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then there's uh, some birds, but there's the, she she loves animals, and I, I do too. But she really takes like you know keeping the homestead going and um, you know taking care of all the animals. So I was about to say, not a dog, but I also understand if you're both out of the house a lot that yeah, that's yeah. not the optimum animal. Yeah, we've talked about it, and I think that that's on the horizon. That's the next one. It's it's hard working the hours that we do. I just feel bad leaving you know, leaving a puppy at home all day, you know, for 12 or 14 hours. Luckily, most of her work is done super early in the morning. So she's home by 6 p.m. So she can, you know, she'd be able to facilitate that a little easier. But I definitely think that's on the horizon. Oh, good. I'm a big, you know, I'm a big dog lover. So I just think it enhances one's life immensely. (laughs) So uh, depending on the dog, not all do, but uh, I think... I, I think they have the ability to do that and uh, take yourself outside of your your usual mindset. So, um, uh, do you you're you're a healthy eater because you're you know you're largely eating at the restaurant. I would see. Do you have any um, kind of secret little things that you like that you wouldn't want to admit to? Uh, yeah, I think McDonald's is the best restaurant in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I think the more cooks that you talk to, you'll figure out that uh, are terrible eaters or have terrible vices of things that like you don't want to admit to. Uh, a Big Mac, I can't say no to a Big Mac. And we eat so much, like, we, we live a vegetarian lifestyle for the most part at home. And obviously, like, I taste everything at the restaurant. I don't, it's not a conscious choice where, like, I love, you know, I'm Filipino, so, like, I'll eat pork every day if i could it probably mm. not a great idea. um but that is like my ultimate cheat day <laughs> i don't know if that's that's admit or not but uh yeah well i'll help because <laughs> i i can't say it's my favorite place but i'm gonna say this it's weird in today's environment when you know i used to be able used to be able to go out and get a sandwich for eight nine bucks and yeah. now i'm finding by the time you do that and have something to drink it's 20 something yeah so you know, it's a different mindset. And I sometimes I think that I really want to spend $20 when I just want to sustain. I really didn't give a shit. Yeah. So I'm good with the McDonald's app. 
<laughs> uh, which you can spend over five bucks and get 20% off, right? And getting a filet of fish meal for eight bucks. So, oh. you know, that fries. And I really, really like, you know, I got tired of the burgers there. Um, but I really like a filet of fish. Uh, it to me satisfies. And that bun, it's perfect every time. It looks like it's ready for a commercial shoot. It just looks perfectly. If you if you served your sandwiches on or your sliders on that, that would be okay. Yeah. So anyway, for yeah, for eight bucks, I can stop by and be done in ten or fifteen minutes. The meal's over with, and I've satisfied that, and I don't have to think about it. So you're not alone. Yes. But <laughs> you know, and we asked Gary the foodie. He loves McDonald's, and or Gary Okazaki, who comes on the podcast, he eats. Michelin star restaurants all over the world, but his default is McDonald's and Domino's pizza. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I think it just comes down to well, like you said, convenience, not having a ton of time, and you know, I, we always get asked by non-industry people that sit at the counter, like, "Well, do you go home and do you cook like this?" And it's it's so funny. Like, ab- absolutely not. I mean, Ginger does cook. Uh, my girlfriend Ginger, she cooks probably five or six times a week at the house. She does most of the cooking. Um, but you know, after 14, 15 hours in the kitchen, that's kind of the last thing you want to do. Unfortunately. And she's home sooner than you, right? Because she did de- desserts. You're not at the restaurant yeah. serving those up. You, those are done during the day. Yeah. She's, she's doing all of her, her preparation for the, for dinner service, um, early in the morning. So she's home earlier and, you know, is kind of, set in uh you know home mode by the time we i come home at about midnight so but two or three days nights a week we can we can eat but usually i'm getting home about 12 or one o'clock in the morning so and then what time do you have to be to work the next day so how much sleep time do you get um i i'm in between nine or ten in the morning depending on which restaurant i'm in so i, I get it i get a couple hours of sleep. it's good <laughs> A couple, <laughs> you get a, you, you might, yeah, you might get a couple of hours with ginger and then you gotta, yeah. you gotta hit slumberland. Um, well, that's cool. So you grew up in a, um, you grew up in a military environment moving around quite, quite a bit. And that was your, um, you know, as a kid, that's what you thought you were going to be doing. It wasn't food. And were yeah. you around food much as a kid? I mean, good food. Yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah, so I, I moved. I was born in Germany in Heidelberg, um, and we came to the states when I was in th- going into third grade. So growing up in Europe initially and being around all of that, like small, small, like little towns, and you know, having uh, like before you know twenty, thirty years before food trucks, like little mobile. Uh, pastry trucks coming by and uh, stopping by our house every single morning. Like that was the norm there. And then my dad's side of the family, you know, coming from the Philippines, food is everything to us. I mean, someone gets married, um, you know, unfortunately, if someone passes away, everything is a party and is celebrated with food. And and that that's the focal point of everything. And my grandfather, my my dad's father um, was a phenomenal cook. So it is a pretty story as far as uh, food wise with any kind of Asian culture or immigrant family in general ethnic minority that that comes over is that's one of the things that tie us to where we came from so I've never been to the Philippines um, we're planning a trip with me and all my many siblings to go back 
this year and next year. But that was my first big food memories is uh, sitting around with my grandfather cooking, all my aunties rolling lumpia and the kids playing. And um, that's still something that we do to this day when we get together. Unfortunately, it's only once or twice a year. But um, yes, I never thought that would be a professional um, path for me. You know, I thought I was going to be in the military. My, both my parents enlisted when they were 17. Uh, my mother was in for 20 years. She was an officer and we had a very strict, uh, disciplined upbringing. And I think that that served well into all phases of my life. It, it carried over into my teens and, uh, being active with sports. And then it was the best thing that kind of set me up for the discipline of, of working in the kitchen, which is very similar in vain to being on a sports team. Right? Can you follow the direction? Can you show up on time? Um, can you show respect? Uh, and can you receive some hard, hard coaching sometimes? And all of that kind of aligns. And it just kind of happened that I was working in these kitchens and doing things when I was figuring out after I uh, decided I wasn't going to go the military route. Um, just kind of working in kitchens and, and not really sure of what what to do and uh, I was dating a girl at the time that was like well you cook all the time you're working in kitchens just go to culinary school um, I ended up enrolling um, right before I turned 19 uh, in culinary school in San Diego the rest is uh, the rest is history I'm here now and you went up through the uh, you know you started as a dishwasher yeah and, uh, yeah so I uh, my first job I think I was 15 uh, I just got like my, my driver's permit. So my family had a rule, um, outside of school, you had to do some sort of activity, right? There's, there's so many of us and you had to be in a sport or, you know, if you were in band or whatever it was, like you had to have an activity year round, stay busy, keep your mind working. Um, so in the gap of summertime, like before two days started for uh, football and the end of the school year. I didn't have an activity. So uh, I started washing dishes at this place in South Austin where, where we were living at the time in high school and uh, kind of worked up there. And it was, it was a great learning experience. You'd, like it's crazy to think back, you know, to being 15 years old and, and getting thrown into that environment. And, you know, everyone's in their late twenties, early thirties and like kind of being entering the kitchen environment for the first time and, you know, instantly fall in love with it. And, you know, you're around all of these interesting characters. And then someone called out one day and I got a chance to make salads. And then I was doing that for a year or so. And then, uh, yeah, that, that kind of started my first experience, um, in restaurants. That was my only and first experience was a salad, making salads. And if I was doing a good job, which was probably pretty rare, um, I got called the salad man. But generally, I was he referred to me as the salad boy. <laughs> so that that's what I got. But my experience started um, way before yours. What position did you play in football? Uh, I was an outside linebacker. No. Oh. I was an outside mm -hmm. linebacker. Um, I played both ways until I was a junior. So I played uh, tailback as well on offense, but uh, definitely uh, more of a defender. I've got the personality type for it. 
Well, nice. So you talk, you know, you talk about teamwork and it struck me when you said one of the similarities between sports and restaurants is showing up on time. And so, um, you know, we're in an environment now. Let's talk a little bit about now, the here and now and how challenging it is to find great staff. I believe you've got a leg up at your restaurants because there are a lot of people that want to work at those restaurants. So you, you can, I think it's a, it's a seller's market when it comes to hiring, I would imagine. Um, but so, uh, how, how has that been since the pandemic? The extreme challenges that people have been finding on reliability and just talent. Um, how's that been going? I think, yeah, you're completely right as far as, you know, it, it's, I think everybody nationally or worldwide is facing similar challenges, no matter what kind of restaurant you, you own and operate. Um, it is easier for us, but it took the first couple months of me coming on board to kind of establish that, figure out, you know, anytime that there's change, especially a, a larger management position, um, things get shaken up a little bit. Um, I've been very blessed with the crew that we have is so driven, hardworking and, and reliable. And we don't have a ton of those issues because of the process we go through vetting people. And before we onboard them, uh, turnover for the back of the house is very, very minimal, if any. And when somebody does move on, we always hope that it's a position that they're moving up within um, – uh, the position is not available for them. So if someone's ready to be a sous chef and that's not available to them at the time and they find a place where they need uh, a sous chef there, then it's always uh, a win for all of us, right? Uh, they get what they want. They've spent good time with us um, and they can go to a place where they're going to be more successful and help their career. And I think that it, it's a pretty easy formula, like on paper, to treat your people well, pay them well, um, and take – a daily interest in their life outside of the restaurant. I think that not enough people do that. I mean, the first time Gabe asked me, like my first week I was working, he was like, how was your weekend? That question. <laughs> yeah. Was, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> it's, it's really sad that that would like surprise me. And that was kind of the landscape of uh, the culinary and restaurant industry where you just work, work, work. And, you're expected to work and, you know, your ownership could care less what you do outside of that. And I think that, you know, they do a really good job. My owners gave an Andy to, to really take interest in people outside of when they're here, you know, helping run their business. Um, so that, I think that that's the biggest thing. I think that the not having a ton of t turnover and like being a stable, having stability within the kitchen, like we haven't had to do a lot of hiring in the last three years. So luckily I can't comment too much on that for, for this restaurant. Um, but it's been, I think the restaurant scene is for the better as far as kind of the old way of thinking of, you know, overwork your people. And if there's any pushback, then we just get rid of them. Like that's, you can't do that anymore. And like rightfully so, and there's a, a lot more empathy that's required and understanding of people having lives outside of their job. Um, yeah. Well, I think it, it embodies what, you know, I think about it from both sides of the equation. 
when you run a restaurant, and I've had, you know, I've had experience, very short ins and outs with lots of restaurants doing collaborations with them. And I've been able to see how many operate and there's so much to commend about the people I've met. But just watching Le Pigeon there and the camaraderie, I remember Gabriel before our dinner would take everybody outside and I could only start imagining what he would do, but go down the street together and do whatever they do and then come back. But I would imagine that it, it has to be organic and they have to, you have to know what you're doing, but it works on both sides of the equation because it makes customers more comfortable as well. And the way you treat your employees, if you, naturally know how to be a human, you're going to do that with your customers as well. And that's, to me, has always been a big part of the experience. Um, The food is is generally going to be pretty good. It might be better at Le Pigeon than it is down the street, but it's generally in Portland. It's going to be really good. But if someone gives you that special experience in the restaurant to make you remember it as a more beyond the food itself. Uh, that's the ingredient for success. I think the main ingredient. Absolutely. And if, if you're, especially in an open kitchen environment, the guests can all tell if you're not happy or you guys don't like working with each other. Right. So it, it's not an act. Like you have to have people that love each other, respect each other and want to be next to each other for 12, 14 hours. Like that's, you can't take um, I think that the, the most interesting thing about coming to Portland, I had never seen this before, but it's all structured for the hourly staff in the back of the house to work four days, four-day work week. So you're working in any kitchen environment, high-end kitchen environment. You, you There's a certain amount of hours that it takes to produce the product for the most part. So you're going to work 10, 12 hours plus anyways for the – uh, collective minds of the the restaurant tours in the city to just say, hey, why don't we just put people on four days instead of making them work five, six, seven days of these ten hour days? They can still be full time. I've never seen that. It doesn't exist in California. I hope that that is uh, uh, pending any like labor laws or that that differ between the states um, where that can be the norm. I think that I've seen it be- directly from three years ago, prior you know being in California to now. Uh, and the production of the the people, the happiness of the staff, uh, it, it's unmatched. And I think that I hope that the rest of the country can kind of get on board with that. Well, as the rest of the country gets on board with that, it becomes more expensive to run a restaurant, right? Yeah. So, so that being said, you know, I know hearing for years before some of the issues that started cropping up in a bigger way right before the pandemic, labor costs, the ability to share tips, uh, food costs. Oh my God. Um, you know, I remember years ago hearing, well, if you're really going to pay the price that you should pay for a burger, it should be $28. And, you know, now that's, it's not, that's not happening, but it's starting to go in that direction. And I alluded to it earlier with, you know, when it gets to that, <laughs> I'll pull out the McDonald's app. Not every time. I, I just want to be clear about that. I do go out to eat. I had some great, you know, I went to local ocean seafoods is my favorite place in Newport. I do go out a lot of places and I'll be going to um, Kai Ku's new place this week too. So, um, but we have to get used to prices being higher and that's going to take, 
you can't just educate the consumers that easily. Like they, you look at, look at the fact that years ago, LePigeon went to a no tipping policy. And to me, that makes real, a lot of sense in so many ways, but fuck, people just can't get used to it. They don't, they want to tip, which is nuts when you think about it. And then the reason that I hear is that they want, they want to hold that over staff that they don't want to pay someone if they're not happy with the service. So, um, it's kind of crazy, but that's part of the, that's a big challenge, right? And so you can, and you're at an advantage because people just naturally are going to give you a little leeway. If things get more ex- expensive, it's because it's Lepigeon and Canard. Yeah. But still, I'm sure if you talk to Gabe, who's been in it for years, he's going to say it's still a it's still a slippery slope to start raising prices. It gets dicey. Yeah, you know, it's it's a business of pennies for sure. If, you know. You don't realize if you don't work in this industry how much a five cent, ten cent increase on something you've been buying for eighteen years or two years really affects you. Um, luckily, you know our price point being higher, you do get more leeway with that. But the price goes up too. Like people already have extremely high expectations, and if you increase the menu price, even if it's ten, twenty dollars. The expectation is going to be, you know, 10, 15% higher. And that that's, you know, I, my staff does a great job of performing and producing a great product every night, but it just makes it harder for everybody. And, you know, we are in a very interesting time right now. Yeah, it's really challenging. So, um, and it's good. To, I feel like everything's starting to come back yeah. a little bit too. And wages are up too. I've seen that. I'm not, this is not going to be an economic report, but when the wages go up, that helps because people, you know, if wages aren't going up and prices go up, that's yeah. difficult. So, uh, hopefully that's going to work. So personally, what do you think? So you've been doing this a long time and you come in and you absolutely put your love and creativity in the menu. But what do you think your personal um, weaknesses are, the things you think you can get better? And what, you're, what makes you, uh, what, what makes you great at what you do? And, you know, the head chef at La Pigeon, that's a big deal. What may, what, what is the difference one way or the other? And what do you think you can get better at? Well, it's funny because, like, it's still – the pigeon is still reigned as, you know, French restaurant, French restaurant. And it is. There's The basis is there, and we always approach something from the mindset of, you know, the basics of French cooking. Uh, we communicate in that way. A lot of the – the reason a lot of kitchens and chefs operate with that is because it's a universal language. A brunoise here is the same as a brunoise in New York. You know, it's, it's this baseline language that you can communicate to any cook – uh, that's a new hire that's unfamiliar with you uh, or the restaurant. And um, it is absolutely got its foot as a French restaurant. But I think that more often than not, it's an awful restaurant, you know, awful as an O-F-F-A-L. We cook brains, hearts, livers. And I, that is the biggest thing that I spend all of my time when Gabe and I are working side by side to learn more about. Like I don't have a ton of experience cooking brains or make uh, corning hearts. Like there's a venison tartare dish that we have on the menu for first course right now. That's um, venison tartare and then a cured heart that's been brined for five days and then slowly poached. And a lot of that is more like I have the French technique and the education and that stuff uh, is very easy to me because it's the only 
Everly cooked in the last two decades, but cooking a lot of the, uh, the awful bits, uh, is something outside of livers and foie. Like I have a ton of experience with that, but understanding the minds uh, of Gabriel Rucker and deep frying lamb's brains, that's not a skill set that I think a lot of chefs have, uh, exposure to. So that's something I still want to continue to work on, uh, with Gabe and learn as much as I can with him, uh, as far as, you know, development, as far as, uh, my strengths in the kitchen. I think there's, you know, in this city alone, there's hundreds of cooks that are probably more talented in their own way. And I'm, I'm not, I definitely have confidence in my ability to cook, but I think the thing that sets me apart is I'm a natural leader and I've been leading, uh, in everything I've done since I was a kid. I'm the oldest technically of eight. We've got a little Brady bunch thing in our family, but my dad has five boys. I'm the oldest of, all of us. And then uh, we have three step siblings as well. And then, you know, the sports background too, it's always been in a position um, to lead and to lead well, to uh, teach and to mentor and to really focus and see people's um, feelings and, and, and baselines. I think that that's the most important thing when you're building a team is how do we set the right people in the right places or the right kitchen to be the most successful, to give them the most out of what they're putting into our business. Um, and I think that that's a skill that I excel at. Very cool. And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but what do you think? I'll ask that same question, but what is it about Mr. Rucker that brought him to where he is now? What, what is, what's really, I mean, we all know he's special. I see so many little nuances of those things that he cares about people. You could just see that even in social media, right? So, but what, what is it? What's the, the thread in his personality and his professionalism that makes him stand apart from a lot of people? Well, I mean, outside of him just being wildly talented and a savant of just like, not even like, even if I show him something that maybe he hasn't seen, he understands it. And it mentally and you can see him while he's thinking and he has a leg up from a lot of people just being naturally uh, unbelievably talented um, outside of that I think the path that he took uh, allowed him to be the man and the chef that he is to this day meaning he's not jaded from coming up through you know big name kitchens and all of these people because he lacked experience in a lot of different places prior to him you know, having his own place, being thrust into the national spotlight, it's allowed him to continue to be him. He didn't have to change how he ran a kitchen, how he talked, how he cooked. He's kind of been left to his own devices, and he's never had to change uh, from being a sweet 23-year-old guy. And I think that that is hands down the most special thing about him is that he treats everyone with respect, and he it's impossible for – it's very hard – for anybody that works for him to say no to a request when you see him scrubbing dumpsters and trash cans and, you know, washing dishes, doing all of the dirty work that somebody of his caliber is not expected to do. And, and the more accolades that he gets, the harder he works. And I think that people want to be led by someone that they admire and, you know, he has no shortage in, in, in any of that. And do you think um, a lot of that has to do with his, celebrated sobriety i mean he, he doesn't he doesn't hide it and you know i i often think what if he hadn't gone that direction what if something hadn't clicked in him to make him go that direction would 
would Le Pigeon and Kennard and he be where they are today? I mean, I would, we talk about this a lot. I think it's like an unofficial thing. It's a very odd situation. The fact that like, there's by no means a requirement or even the question asked uh, in an interview process for anybody that, that comes to work with us uh, if they're sober. But I think that the overall idea, the change of the landscape where you don't have to be this uh, group of pirates that's out drinking and doing whatever until five in the morning and then bragging about not having sleep. I mean, absolutely. I think that we're, we're better in every way when that is taken out of your daily lifestyle. I mean, it makes you more focused and we're not saying that you have to completely do that. That's not, that's not the path or the, the side that we take at all, but from personal experiences, there's no way that I can honestly tell myself or listeners that I'm better at work the day after five beers or without any at all. And it just so happens that we kind of organically attracted a whole bunch of people that are sober, myself included. Um, it's an interesting environment, and I'm a little bit um, envious that I didn't have the opportunity to learn from a group of people and come up when I was 15, 16, 17, 18 in my first kitchens, because it was the complete opposite, you know, where that environment is, you know, act, act worse when you're outside of work. And uh, that's changed. And it's, that, that is the, I can't speak highly enough about how important that is to our, to me and Gabe personally. And it's kind of rippling through the rest of all of our, our staffers where it, they're taking on, they're finding other things, productive things to do with their time outside of work. Um, and that, that makes him very proud. And it makes me proud as well. That is pretty awesome. I think that's a good note to end on. And I, and I really appreciate your, um, taking the time and dealing with some technical issues. This is like the second or third week in a row we've had them, but, and they fell back on you to figure out on your on your stuff. So I really appreciate your taking the trouble and then the time and the time to, uh, to speak with me twice. You've taken some valuable time out of your schedule. So, um, I am sure everyone will benefit from hearing what you had to say. So, and I benefit, I'm very glad to have met you and, and see you both sideways and right side up. (laughs) Thank you so much. It was a it was a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I'm I'm really really uh, honored and happy to be a part of such a great city and such a great food. That is awesome. I will uh, make it a point to get in and meet you. Uh, hopefully, get a seat at the counter. I know Andy does everything in his power to make sure that people believe there's no real difference between and all of you do a job to make sure there's no real difference between sitting at the counter and the outer tables. But either way, it'll be good to see you all. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right